So first of all, it's really, I just have to say this, it's really a kavod for me to be asked uh, to participate in this your site. Uh, Yomiyun. Um, I was joking around with them downstairs. I did not go to Migdalos, and I am not married to a Gush graduate. So <laughs> being asked to do this is like really, uh, really special for me. That's that's number one. And uh, number two, I really just want to acknowledge the presence of my mother here. It's it's really an honor for me to have her here. She's a passionate, passionate educator who's instilled in me a lot of the passion I have for education, and uh, it's really special for me to be giving this uh, with with her here. Um, okay. Um, can, I, can I maybe ask someone to shut the door there so we can make, make it feel like we're in, we're in one room? Uh, the source sheets are all on the chairs over here so everyone can, can grab one. And I'm going to jump right in because I have a lot I want to get to, and I've been told we have a 1120 hard stop. So here we go. Um, I have often heard the story, I don't know if you've heard it as well, attributed to many different sources, in which a teacher introduces his students to a new concept of heaven and hell. Don't think that hell is where people are consumed by fire for their sins or that heaven is where they are rewarded with pleasures for their piety. What really happens is that God gathers everybody in one large hall. He gives everyone a Talmud and he commands them to start studying and tells them that that is what they will do for eternity. For some, they realize they are in heaven and for others, they realize they are in hell. <laughs> Many would say that's not merely a description of the afterlife, but really is an apt description of this life and the daily high school Torah classroom as well as adult study. Some, for those who connect to it in a certain way, it's inspiring, vigorous, compelling, powerful. And for others, it's just difficult to really sit through that day after day for a elongated period of time. And I talk to seniors very often who are looking to spend a year in Israel, and a lot of times I hear, well, I don't know if I could do that all day. What I want to focus on today is the concept of our relationship as Orthodox Jews to the canonical text. We'll talk a little bit about what that is. The, our relationship with these narratives, these laws, these words that form our existence as a text-centered community, and how we're using those texts to inspire our children and ourselves. Um, so let's, um, I, I feel very inadequate to this task because I think there are plenty of people, anyone who's in this room who has had a child go through the uh, yeshiva day school system probably has more experience with what it means to foster Jewish knowledge, love, and relationship with learning um, than I do. But I'm going to talk a little bit about what I encounter in the classroom, what I've encountered in the classroom, my own struggles and challenges, highs and lows, and some observations in the world of education, um, and the questions that I believe I ask myself on a daily basis and that I believe we should all be asking ourselves specifically about our relationship with text. Okay. Um, this is a very broad topic to cover in, I was going to say 45 minutes, now it's actually 35. But let's, um, let's jump in and, and, um, and, see, and see kind of as we go what we can do and what we can, you know, what, what we'll need to skip here. Okay. Um, what sets, I believe, um, from talking to many friends who are teachers as well, but what sets Orthodox education apart is the emphasis on familiarity with text. Right? We want to build all the same things as, you know, as, as kind of any educational system wants to do, but we're very focused on creating a relationship with text. Right? The first thing Jews are told to do is to, as a nation is to educate their children. You've got to tell a bincha. And education, especially in the Orthodox world, has meant through text. We're the people of the book, right? uh, originally an Islamic term referring to non-Islamic people. And though it was first intended pejoratively, I think people of the book in Jewish tradition has come to be accepted with pride as a legitimate reference to a culture and religious identity that is rooted fundamentally in Torah. So a brief introduction to the idea of a canon, right? a religion or a group of people that are uh, utilizing a text as their identity, and you'll see why this, is, this will become important in a moment. Um, 
Okay, the chronology of the sealing of the canon, and when I say canon, I refer to the 24 books of the Tanakh, right, the, the texts that create that identity. And the chronology of the sealing, when we decided those would be the, the books that we would call our books, is very complex. Which books would enter the canon seems to have been established sometimes towards the end of the Second Temple era, um, late Persian, early Hellenistic period, maybe as early as 150 BC. Josephus mentions a canon of 22 books, but he doesn't actually name them, so there's discussion and scholarship about, you know, which two was he leaving out? Esther and Kohelet may have not been considered canonical, canonical until a little bit later. Um, and, and what the rabbis decided to include and why is a discussion you'll find kind of sprinkled uh, across the, the Talmud. Now, canonical as an adjective can mean many things. Texts form, and I'm going to go through three of them, and you'll see why it's significant in this discussion. Texts form a normative canon, so it's called a normative canon, when they are obeyed or followed, something that, that is obeyed or followed, so like a legal code. Any sort of legal code, what, you know, whatever society is following it, that would be called what we call a normative canon. That would be the mitzvah, halachic portion of our canon. Um, texts establish what we call a formative canon when they provide a society or a profession with a shared vocabulary. So in this type of canon, familiarity with those texts is a precondition for membership. So say, if you're going to study constitutional law, you need to be familiar with the Constitution. Uh, familiarity with certain narratives. I know these texts. I grow up with them. I learn them. That's what we call a formative canon. So, so far we're seeing that Tanakh fits both of those, um, both of those categories. And finally, they serve um, as something called an exemplary canon when texts serve um, as a paradigmatic example of value and achievement, criteria for a higher form of behavior or art, models for imitation. And those, I think, are very much the narrative parts of our Torah, right? Those are our exemplary canon. So think of our texts and their relationship of identity with our community as normative, formative, and exemplary, okay? Normative, the law formative, just kind of a text that we share as a community in our vocabulary, and exemplary in terms of paradigmatic examples of value and achievement. And obviously these, these can converge, right? The Talmud is both formative and normative. Um, so, so, so keep those kind of uh, categories in mind as well. And also keep in mind that very often the canonicity of a text or the text that we include in our canon um, very often serve as a demarcating function, right? Once we decide what's in and what's out, that also starts to speak to what we perceive as our identity because we can discuss the books that were not included in the canon that we decided not to make normative, formative, and exemplary, and then we can ask, well, why not? So the books that we choose to put into the canon are very important in terms of how we see our identity. Now, how... And, and obviously there's a lot more we can discuss when it comes to canonicity, who has the right to determine what's in the canon, who didn't, who interprets that canon. So those are all other, other subjects we won't get to today. But how we understand and relate to this text, and this is where I really want to start, if you take a look at the source sheet, has changed fundamentally since we received this text at Harsinai. And that major text really occurred in the rabbinic era with the loss of the Beit HaMikdash and prophecy, where learning the text, actually taking the text and using it as a basis for learning became much more central to the religious experience. Now let me show you what I mean here, because this is important. In Torah itself, if you look at Hamishachum Shei Torah itself, the function of the book and of the text is more variable. In Shemot, it seemed that the Torah was being given to us, not necessarily to be learned, but standing as something that was more covenantal, that was meant to be signed and kept as a reminder. What do I mean by that? Take a look at source number one. We don't see as much of an emphasis on the learning or kind of the pedagogic function of the text. So 
Sefer Shmot, Parachot Dalid, Bayach Tov Moshe, it's called Zivrei Hashem, Bayash Kem Baboker, Bayivan Mizbeach, Tachat Ahar, Shnei Masei Matzevah, Shnei Masar Shivtei Yisrael. So he writes down, you know, everything that God just told him to write down. Uh, they continue with the Karbanot, um, the Dam, there's Arach Oha Mizbeach. And look at what Torah is called in Pasuk Zion. Vayikach Sefer Habrit. It was something that represented the covenant between God and Am Yisrael. It represented the fact that we were being given something that we were committing to and that we were committing back towards that. So the first time that Am Yisrael kind of heard these words read out loud to them, it wasn't here, sit in a classroom and learn it. It was here, this represents the relationship and the promise and the covenant that was just created. You see this again in source two. Savet Aron that Banav Lemor, Zotorat Haolah, He Haolah, Mokdal, Mizbeachol, Laila Adbokar Veh. So this is Torat Haolah. It was kind of given to Aharon, and we see here that it was a set of instructions over here, something that you need to follow and you need to do. Neither of these two sources seem to seem to get yet to the point of here is something that you're going to sit in the Beit Midrash and learn with. It was more, here is something that's going to represent the Brit, and here is something that will give you instructions of something you need to do. The first time we ever see the word Lidrosh when it comes to Torah, that something, Torah is something that we're supposed to be Dorish, that we're supposed to learn, is in Sefer Ezra, in Source 3. Ki Ezra hechim levavo Lidrosh et Torah Hashem, Ezra decided that we were at a time where Torah was going, to be ha- doing, was going to be forced to be something that we had to interpret, that we had to sit in a classroom and learn. Now, it wasn't just a contract. It wasn't just a core of obligation. It became, we at that point became a more tech-centered community, inquiring, investigating, contemplating, probing. The text became something that we had to learn. Now, I, I want to come back to A, B, C, and D here, but in just the interest of time to make sure we get to where I really want to get to, I'll just say those are sources that kind of focus on the idea of why did this change occur at this time. Well, this is really the change that occurs between um, Jews, uh, prophetic Jews, prophecy, versus Dorit. Jews, right? We didn't need to really learn Torah in the way that we did now because the prophets were able to come and say, here's what this means and here's what you need to do. But, you know, if you look at source, um, if you look at source C, here we have this idea of Chacham Adis Minazi, and the idea that the Nazi was being phased out, and the new person who would be the leadership of the Jewish community was the Chacham, the Talmud Chacham, the person who could learn Torah, right? Ezra kind of um, initiated this idea of the person who can read the Torah and try to be Doreshit is now going to be leadership in the community. And then you the Talmud Bavli and Sorsi, right? The Nazi, there's something fascinating and wonderful to this. I mean, these are the classrooms we all sit in today, learning Torah. Um, we are able to be machadesh ideas. There are chidushim. We can learn. I can come and give you an idea I have on something. You can create a Dvar Torah, right? We can learn from the Chacham or from anyone who wants to invest themselves in the text to be a Chacham. And there's something wonderful about that because the Nazi was not allowed to be machadesh. But there was also something sad about that because the reason we were forced Right, or we en- the entry into learning occurred because we didn't have the direct line anymore. So there's this kind of give and take that occurs. We are investing ourselves now in what the Torah means because we no longer have the direct line to what it means there. Now, okay, and, and, and this, by the way, is what occurs, you know, this, this change over to, the, to Ezra and Dorish is what occurs in every single one of our classrooms, right? We read a text. We ask, what does this mean? We read the way it was interpreted by rabbinical texts or Rishonim or modern texts or even the class, the children in the, or the adults in the classroom itself. And this is where that's born, right? This idea of Lidrosh, lidrosh Torah. Now, 
with this introduction, here's where we really get to the meat of our relationship with the text. Yes? Uh, with regard to the uh, prohibition of a, a Navi, uh, adding something new, does that apply equally to all three aspects of the canon that you laid out? That is a really good and interesting question, meaning it, did it apply really much more to the normative part than to the formative and exemplary? Um, I don't know straight off the bat on that, but I think it's a really interesting question to think about. What did that mean in Abish um, Rashai? But think about also the fact that learning Torah became applicable to all three. Right? Like we were the ones who had to kind of Torah this is the whole Torah Lobashamayim idea, right? We were the ones that kind of had to had to figure out narrative, exemplary, formative, normative, right? We became the ones who had to kind of try to, to figure that out. Um, now studies show that religiosity peaks at around seventh grade. Far bar misfage, not just in the Jewish world, but even in the non-Jewish overall Christian American society. So statistics show that beginning with high school kids, level of religious commitment, connections to God, etc., all start to slowly drop off. Doubt begins, and it doesn't pick up again until they leave high school, and often much later. Um, interestingly, the year in Israel has a large effect on how quickly things start to turn in an upswing again. Um, studies have also found separately that intellectual engagement with text begins on a level outside of straight student to teacher at the same time. Cognitive thinking, uh, critical period, the very critical period, seventh, eighth, ninth grade for reading analysis, how you connect to text. So therefore, that's kind of your high school ages, 13 to 17. So this would be, those two things are colliding, drop off of religious, experience, you know, religious connection, but also an ability to kind of independently start to engage with text. This would be a great opportunity or an ideal time for the text the analysis of the text to become a channel for religious development and growth, meaning for their growth in cognitive thinking and their growth in relationship and reading analysis to help them in their, relig their religious process, for their intellectual engagement with the narrative to be a part of the process of their religious growth and connection. The question is, does it? Are we utilizing the text in that way? And I think to make this question a little bit more precise, I want to direct you one of my favorite books of all time, which I highly, I, I almost can't give a lecture without quoting from it. Um, I highly, it's an easy read, it's not difficult, I highly recommend it for everyone. And this is um, Joshua Four's Joshua Moonwalking with Einstein. So take a look at uh, source number four for a moment. Um, Joshua Four is the brother of Jonathan Four, um, uh, Jonathan Safran Four, the novelist, and I think has uh, parents and family who are members of Lincoln Square. So, okay, all right. So very appropriate all around. Uh, here's what I loved about this book. Okay, what happened? Joshua Four uh, was a young journalist, and he was asked to cover the uh, national memory contest, which is he thinks he's going to go write a short little piece about a memory contest. He walks into a room and he meets these people, and what they're basically doing is they're memorizing sheets of numbers in a row, cards, you know, kind of um, suit and number in a row, and they get up there and they're, they're given a few minutes to look at these five pages of just endless numbers, and then they're given a couple minutes to write down what they remembered, and it's just all these different exercises in what he thinks is kind of like pointless memory, like great, Yashikawach, you've memorized like 700,000 numbers in a row, but he's kind of fascinated watching these people do it, because they're doing it, and he's like, this is, this is, these people must be brilliant, to which they told him, no, it's not that we're brilliant, it's just that there's a way of training your mind to memorize, um, which is a kind of lost art in many ways, which he talks about. Anyway, he becomes really interested in this. He decides to join. I think a couple years later, he wins the contest. And he, the book is about his experience training himself to memorize. Um, but the book is also a book about memory. He's really interested in the idea of human memory. And one of the things that he talks about, which is really interesting, is the, the idea that 
one of the reasons why memory has dropped off kind of in the last couple of centuries is that we have so many places to put knowledge that we need to remember, right? I have a shopping list. I don't have to memorize it. I write it down, right? I, anything I need to know, if I don't commit it to memory, that's okay. I have all these appendages of memory that I can use. So, so take a look at, at one aspect of what he talks about here, which is really interesting. He's talking about the idea that writing for a long time was in, and but this will all tie back, I promise. We're going to tangent a little here for a moment. That writing for a long time was in something called scriptia continua which means that there were no spaces between the words. Um, now, actually, uh, if anyone's familiar with the Qumran scrolls, you know that actually word spacing was practiced, word division was practiced in ancient Hebrew scripts and scrolls, but there are others where it wasn't. And, and what Scriptia Continua was, was that they, it took them actually longer than you would think to discover that spaces between words could be helpful for a reader. But the, what, what, what Scriptia Continua mandated was that the main reader of a community had to be already familiar with text before they came to it um, because it's very hard to read. So in order for, and remember, in those days, people aren't really reading on their own. Copies of books and manuscripts aren't available to everyone. Everyone's getting together to hear some sort of, you know, Bible or religious text or communal text read out loud, and there's one person reading it, and that person couldn't read the way we do, where we pick something up and we read it and now we know what it is. He had to come to it already familiar with it because it was a difficult text to read. Interestingly enough, Four points out that there's kind of one place left where that's still the case, and that's reading the Torah in the synagogue, um, as any bar mitzvah boy knows. That is not reading, You're like, oh, I could pick it up and read it. You must come to the text already familiar with what the text says, right, because of lack of vowelization, etc. You can't just read it like that. So here's what he says about scriptio continua. The difficulties associated with reading such texts meant that there was a very different relationship between reading and memory than the one we know today. Since sight reading scriptio continua was difficult, reciting a text aloud with fluency required a reader to have a degree of familiarity with it. He, and it was mostly he, had to prepare with it, punctuate it in his mind, memorize it, in part if not in full, because turning a string of sounds into meaning was not something you could do easily on the fly. The text had to be learned before it could be performed. After all, the way one punctuates a text written in scriptio continua could make all the difference in the world. And then he points out that this cute piece. God is now here versus God is nowhere. So you really you have to know your stuff before you get up there. This is the point I want to focus on. From our vantage point today, separating words seems like a no-brainer. But the fact that it was tried and rejected says a lot about how people used to read. So too does the fact that the ancient Greek word most commonly used to signify to read was anagignosko, which means to know again or to recollect. Reading as an act of remembering. From our modern vantage point, could there be a more unfamiliar relationship between reader and text? We read nowadays to gain knowledge. I open up a book because I haven't read it. I'm interested to see what's inside it. And I read it, and I have gained knowledge. Books are storers of knowledge in our minds. But not that long ago, books didn't serve that function at all. Not many people had access to books. So books, when they were read out loud, didn't serve as to teach the public that was reading it something. But chances are, if the group was getting together to read something, it was a group recollection or ritual reciting, not to find out new information, but to recite something, to remember something together as a community. So this is point one. 
um, that I want you to keep in mind. We used to read not to gain knowledge, but to recollect. The best example I can think of is a wedding album. For most people, when they're going through a wedding album, you're not opening that book to see something new. It's a, it's a recollection of something, right? You're seeing something you're already familiar with, you already know, but you're going through it to remind ourselves of something. Point, keep that point in mind. Point number two, source five. Uh, Hans Meyerhoff. Um, this particular passage is actually quoted in um, Professor Yosef Yerushalmi's Zachor. He was a professor, passed away a few years ago at the age of 77, Jewish history professor at Columbia. Um, and he quotes here um, in his book, he quotes uh, Hans Meyerhoff, who's a professor of philosophy at UCLA. Yerushalmi's book, Zachor, talks a lot about the tension between Jewish memory and Jewish history, that we only started actually studying Jewish history um, a little while ago, but Jewish memory, which is the idea of kind of collect, recollecting something as a group, we've obviously been doing for, for a very long time. The Rambam actually sees, um, talks about the writing of history as a low form of intellectual endeavor. Like he actually doesn't see the, the, the idea of history as something important, much more the idea of collective remembering Jewish holidays any time that we, we kind of do that. So here's, here's what Meyerhoff said. A situation has developed which is quite paradoxical in human terms. The barriers of the past have been pushed back as never before. Uh, our knowledge of the history of man and the universe has been enlarged on a scale and to a degree not dreamed of by previous generations. We know what type of earthenware was being used by some remote tribe in the 1100s, right? We have this insane knowledge of history. At the same time, the sense of identity and continuity with the past, whether our own or history, has gradually and steadily declined. Previous generations knew much less about the past than we do, but perhaps felt a much greater sense of identity and continuity. So what do we have here? People used to read texts as reminders. They were already highly familiar with what it contained. Um, reminds me of the Hakel commandment, right? Reading it out loud for the purpose of communal recognition rather than teaching something new per se. And two, people connected to that text was Meyerhoff's point, right? They read that text and it was like going through a wedding album. It was a group recollection of something wonderful and something fantastic. It was impressed on your consciousness. You would, you would be encountering the relevance of this text as a memory, as something real and alive, an essential part of your life, your history, and your culture. So now, let's summarize what we've seen so far. We have two categories here. We have modern learning and reading, which is Ezra's Doresh. The text is something new. I walk into my classroom, even if my students have already learned this particular story. In my mind, I'm here too show them new things about that text, right? Let's find, let me teach you stuff you've never learned about it before. That's the modern reading, the Ezra's Doresh. And then we have the kind of more ancient reading, right, where it wasn't necessarily about pulling new ideas, but it was kind of this group recollection, this group remembering. So um, if, we, if we keep that in, that in mind, then, and, and we could talk a lot about how the printing press also had an effect on that, but keep those two categories in mind and think about how they apply to a typical classroom because the time period of Ezra marked this very interesting demarcation. We don't really think about texts, even biblical texts with which we are so familiar, as something that is a communal recollection or a communal memory. We want to learn something new from it. I do not want to go to a shir, I don't want to go to a communal reading and not learn something new. We're Doresh Jews. 
in a wonderful way, right? We, this is why I think we've pushed away from memorization, right? We have parents and teachers and educators who are like, what does memorization do? You're not learning anything. If you're not learning the text, what's the point in reciting something? But as anyone who, I know like um, my grandparents, you know, had operas that they were going to for the 50th time, right? They weren't learning something new, but they were engaging with the language and the text and the words and the experience as something that was recollection, it was history, it was memory, it was experience. And I wonder sometimes if, and this is a question I ask myself all the time as a teacher, yes, um, I am walking into my classroom and I think as, as good teachers, what we want to do is make sure they're learning something new from it. But are we, and this is a word that we're saying you see all the time, are we inspiring reverence? We're walking into a classroom. I might be fascinating you intellectually, literarily, but if you don't walk away from that text feeling like it's a wedding album, right, that it's something that we are experiencing together as a community because it is the core of our identity. It is safer habrit. It is something we should frame and hang on a wall. Then, then what are we missing? And like, I have this discussion with my students, and and I always say, like, who here thinks leaning is boring? They're all like, all the hands off. God, leaning is so boring. Well, leaning—that's what leaning is supposed to be, right? We are getting together. We are reading something that is familiar, right? And I always tell the kids, like, if you go to a concert, who's having more fun—the person who knows all the songs or the person who doesn't? It's the person who knows the songs who's engaged because they're connected to the identity, the history, the power of that moment. And yet, we're such do-re's Jews that when someone's reading something aloud that I've learned before, my, my, my response is, well, what are you teaching me? You're not teaching me anything. And I think sometimes, especially in the modern Orthodox classroom, in which we've gotten so good at Doresh, we are so good at it. I mean, we have so many opportunities to hear new, interesting, thoughtful, analytical Torah. But are we also relating to the text with the idea that outside of its intellectual literary stimulation, it is just the, it is the reverence, it is the embodiment, the core of who we are as people. It is our wedding album. Let me um, give you an example from literary theory. Let me see where we are on time. Okay, running out of time. Let me give you an example of literary theory. I'm going to use something called um, reader response and authorial intent as an analogy. When you're teaching literature to adolescents, a lot of the, the literature talks about the tension between reader response theory and authorial intent. Which one is dominant, the reader or the text? So should we be striving to learn the major common interpretations of the text, what everyone agrees is what the author may have wanted the text to mean? Or, and that kind of um, favors internal psychological processes, experiences of the reader, what do we feel when we read this text, how do we see this text? We do very similar things in a Torah classroom. How is it relevant to your life? What does this text mean to you? How do you interpret it? What do you think of it? But there is this tension between do we try to strive on what the reader response is, do we focus on that, or do we focus on kind of this is the one meaning of the text? Um, Fast, very fascinating and, and, and very relevant if you kind of read in because there's a lot of relationship of reader to text and how reader response and focus on individual readers can reflect how individuals in that classroom relate to each other as a community. Some of the pushback about reader response is that you don't create as much community when everyone in the classroom can have their own approach to the text. Um, there's a great story, I think, told by, uh, about W.B. Du Bois that someone came over to him and asked um, what a line in his poem means. There was a line in one of his poems, three white leopards sat under a juniper tree, and like someone came over to him and said, you've got to tell me what that line means, and he responded, it means three white leopards sat under a juniper tree, meaning I'm the author, but I put it out there, and it's for you to interpret. What I think it means is not relevant anymore. And then you have others who say, no, of course what the author means thinks it's relevant. They're the writer, they're the shaper of the text. 
I think we sometimes err on the side of reader response in that we make it so important what it is, how we're analyzing this text in new and precious ways. What do you think it means? Shivim panim la Torah, you know, Torah loba shamayim he. We need to insert ourselves into the text which I'm not taking away from. It's amazing and fantastic and wonderful. But in literature, teachers who don't focus on reader response don't do so, if you look at the writing, because of a concern of ambivalence towards the idea of personal authority taking the place of the core of central authority and the beauty and relevance of where that text was born. Who was the person who wrote that text? How was it created? And if you think about kind of that tension in the Torah classroom, there's something kind of what's sometimes called um, reverence, and resistance, right? Reverence for the text, pushing back against this idea of, of resistance. Let's fight with the text. Let's analyze it. Let's, you know, we don't fight with a wedding album. It just is what it is. It's the core of a memory. We are, we have a responsibility to have both when it comes to the text. Um, we must develop what's called textual power, but we also must develop what's called surrender to the text, that the text is what it is on its own. What's my point? I'm all for reader response. I'm all for the essence of, I think that's the essence of learning. I think that those are things that must take place in our classroom every single day. But I think that we must challenge ourselves to also build and encourage a sense of humility in our encounter with the text as well, which seems to be fading more in a postmodern biblical exegesis age. Um, I. I, I actually put a note in here, and it's an honor for me to have him sitting in the front, that there's a great article by Rabbi Nadi Halfgott in the Mi'orot Journal about Yerat Shemayim in a modern Orthodox curriculum um, and the challenges sometimes of, of, of that there. So, uh, you know, seeing the text as a reverence for that text itself, uh, what it is, who, capital W, wrote it, and not just what I see and what I discover um, when I come to the text. So. Back to moonwalking with Einstein, uh, this idea changed the way I learned biblical text. It isn't a pursuit of knowledge alone. It is also a homecoming. And that, to me, is a major goal for how I think about the classroom. It's a very, very complicated balance. But whoever said modern orthodoxy was easy, right? Mm -hmm. Our relationship with the text is as complicated as is our balance between particularism and universal engagement with the world, halachic integrity, and the encounter with ideas of flexibility and development. And I would put our relationship with text in that category as well, reader and text, reverence, and reader response. How do we do that? That's another lecture. So when I talk to people about this, they're like, well, how do we do it? Um, we don't have time. I had a couple notes about how we do that. I think I'll have to come back to that. I just want to make sure we get to um, uh, the Revolutionary pieces at the end because this was something that um, Revolutionary talked about not only all the time, but he often emphasized the aspect of relationship to the text using reverence. And, um, You'll notice, and I'm not going to have time for it now, but he actually, his, his dissertation, which was on uh, Henry Moore, one of the, the Cambridge, one of the well-known Cambridge Platonists, who were a group of theologians and philosophers at, the, at Cambridge University in the middle of the 17th century. I know most people think of Lipson's dissertation was on Milton. I actually heard someone just told me last week that there is someone, I wouldn't be surprised if they're in this room now, since that's going to be the case, uh, who is writing a paper on why most people think Rev. Lipstein's dissertation was on Milton when it was not. So there is a paper being written about that. Stay tuned. But it was not. And he, he actually talks a lot about this idea of, he uses this term in the dissertation quite a few times, over-intellectualization and how the Platonists struggled with 
the over-intellectualization of religion versus the idea of wonder, wonder when it comes to religion. If you've read anything by Abram Joshua Heschel, this was a big, big theme of his, this idea of, of, of approaching Judaism and text and faith with something called wonder um, and reverence. Um, his, his dissertation almost reads like an autobiography of, of himself in terms of that struggle that takes place between engaging in study for the intellectual um, you know, experience, but also coming to a Beit Midrash or the Torah with just the feeling of, wow, right? So what is it, wow, you know, not me as the center, but the text, the text is the center. So he talks about this uh, topic all the time, um, and if you take a look just at the last source, because I think this is, you know, I obviously can't say it better than he says it himself, um, he talks about the, the, Idea of if you look, these are there are, however, in leaves of faith, deeper and more genuine roots for the ambivalence. These relate primarily to anxiety over the loss of passion and the jading of awe. Concern that efficiency will be attained at the expense of reverence touches a raw nerve. A Beit Midrash is not a shoe factory, and its occupants are not indentured to the bottom line. It should, it is the epicenter of our existential orbit, and study there is animated by a simple petition: In this respect. The ambivalences, and you can't. I guess I, I, I usually can't quote Rabbi Sosia without bringing in something literary there because he does it so often and because um, so does it so beautifully. So he quotes from a poem, uh, Lamia, Keith's poem Lamia, where he, he and he talks about the idea of do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy. There was an awful rainbow once in heaven. We know her what for texture she is given in the dull catalog of common things. Philosophy will clip an angel in angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, empty the haunted air and gnome's mind, unweave a rainbow. And this is Wilsonstein talking, right? The height of philosophical intellectual endeavor. And he's talking about his fear of that unweaving the rainbow um, and that a rainbow's effect on one is that you come and you experience it and it's not necessarily about whether or not you know the details um, of how it works. So um, again, I am not at all belittling the idea of Walt Whitman's idea that in order to be great texts, there must be great readers. I think that is very, very, very much a part of who we are. But I'm putting the challenge out there that in doing so, we must be very careful that we are also including the idea of reverence and the idea of the rainbow that is in front of us and that we don't unweave that rainbow by bringing a character to the text that is all about just the analysis of the words themselves. Um, I think we are right on time here, so I'm going to say with that, um, I know that that is a, a very big challenge that I face every day, and I think we all do, and um, I am being told to remind you that the program today will continue with the panel downstairs. Thank you all very much. <laughs>